This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information. Larry Houston was Vice President of Knowledge and Innovation for many years at Procter & Gamble. During that time, he was the architect of its Connect and Develop approach to innovation, the creator of P&G's brand boot camp operation, an innovation leader for the company's global fabric and home care business, among other initiatives. He is now managing partner of 4Inno and recently joined Wharton's Max Center for Technological Innovation as a senior fellow. Knowledge at Wharton asked Houston to talk about innovation and its role in a global economy. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. I'd like to start out by asking you, what, what is the connect and develop approach to innovation, and why is it innovative? Okay. <laughs> Terrific question to start with. Well, you know, uh, you've got to start with what is innovation in most companies today. And for most companies, I would say it's all about inventing everything yourself. Uh, yeah, some companies do joint ventures. They mostly do that out of trying to fill in a, a weakness or a capability gap they have. But most companies invent everything. Um, Procter & Gamble invented 90% of its innovations. Everything came from basically within the four walls of, of P&G. We had 9,000 R&D people at Procter & Gamble, but the world has about 1.8 million people that were equal in education, access to first-class lab facilities as P&G people. So basically, Connect and Develop is all about redefining our organization as 1,809,000 people, that 1.8 million, plus our 9,000 people, and then leveraging the intellectual assets and capabilities of the world in a connected model to bring big innovations to our consumers. So it's about connecting not just inventing. And really think about it as you want to continue to invent, but you want to connect. It's what you know plus who you know on the outside so that you can really create a lot of value for your customers or consumers. So if I get it right, it's basically the model that you're describing is about harnessing the uh, innovative ability and the creativity of external constituencies with an organization in order to drive the innovation process. Absolutely. What, and and it's are, not outsourcing, it's an insourcing. I think that's another mis, misconception. What, what are some of the challenges, especially on the intellectual property front, that, that come up when you use that kind of a model? Yeah. I think, frankly, the biggest challenge is a mindset of inside companies. Most people have the attitude that if we share our briefs, with people on the outside. Our competitors are going to read what we're going to do. And it's really changing the inside culture to accept ideas. I mean, what you do in Connect and Develop is what companies always do. I mean, if someone comes and knocks on your door, you will ask them to share things with you non-confidentially or you'll share things non-confidentially. If you think they have something, hopefully it's patented. However, if it's not patented, you then reach out and you begin to develop, uh, you know, confidential agreements, one-way, two-way agreements, and so on. And that's how you operate today. And what you do under Connect and Develop is the same way. It's just that I'm doing it at scale. Think of doing what you're doing on a small-scale basis, typically, where you have a you know, the innovation office at each company or an out licensing and new business development, but you're now doing it at scale. 
So what you've got to basically do is put controls in place and vetting processes in place so that the the whole organization just isn't sending, you know, even confidential information on the outside. They're sharing non-confidential information. But you the normal processes of confidential agreements and uh, being clear on on uh, you know the responsibilities associated with an, that and everything still exist as if you were still small. It's a scale issue for the most part. And frankly, in the entire time that you know we did this when I was at Procter and Gamble, I can't think of a single significant intellectual property issue where we've tipped our hand to a competitor. Now there are ways to handle this. Briefs are very important. Trying to define what you're looking for. You can sometimes we just deliberately put our name on a brief and send it to the world because we get a much higher hit rate if we put our name on it. That's they want to be associated with a big company. Other cases you can you may describe your problem in a very oblique way. You may not say what you're doing, or you can disguise disguise it in some way. Uh, so there's a whole variety of mechanisms to to deal with this. It will be the first reaction that people have that this is going to be a barrier, but my experience and experience of other companies are doing this is that it's sort of uh, an unknown fear kind of thing that really, really is uh, way blown out of proportion. If IP isn't an issue, then what are some of the biggest challenges of pulling this off? Well, the biggest challenge of making a company uh, into a connected innovation company is I would say, number one, it's got to be a strategic capability. This is a strategic platform for a corporation. This is not something that, you know, a department within, you know, a pharma company or a car company or a consumer products company can do. This has to be something where the CEO and the management team says, we're going to make a fundamental shift. We believe that our current invented model is not sustainable to create the needed levels of top-line growth that we need and that we've got to find a new way to create shareholder value and value for our consumers or customers. And we're going to embrace a new model of innovation, a model that basically depends upon us getting very clear what will drive value for our customers, expressing that in a way that the intellectual assets of the world people's ideas, institutions, other companies can come in, our door will be open, and they can come and join with us in solving these problems for our customers. But it's a, it's a major, major mind shift for companies to do this. So that's why I say the senior management has to be involved. And, you know, it's, it's just really incumbent upon the CEO and the top management to say, we really don't think our current innovation model can create the needed levels of growth. If you take a company like Procter & Gamble, we have to create 7% growth per year from innovation. This is a $72 billion company. That means we have to create $5 billion a year. Imagine if you're GE, who's well over a $100 billion company, what you have got to do. So is our organization capable of embracing all the new science that's coming at us, biosciences, nanotechnology. You can't, you, there's not enough money to embrace the new technology and build all the capacity you need of all the stuff that's coming at you, yet create all these needed levels of growth. So we fundamentally decided 
that the current R&D model or innovation model that we're following and most companies is following is a broken model. It's not sustainable. So when the top officers of the company reach that conclusion, you know, it's time to change. And, uh, and so I, I, I really do think that the most important thing is that wake-up call for people to realize that and for companies to realize that, you know, big companies have lots of money, but they need to act like little companies who don't have a lot of money and be open to the outside world and, you know, making connections. So that's fundamentally what it's about. And I, and I do think that's the most important thing. Now, under that are a huge number of things and changing the culture and building capabilities and all kinds of things. But I think that's the most important thing in this whole scenario. I think you're quite right that, you know, a, a number of companies ha- are starting to hear the wake-up call. Yeah. Uh, they want to be innovative, but very often they don't know how. Uh, what do you find are some of the main barriers to innovation uh, within companies that want to be innovative? Well, I, I think other than uh, really having the will and, you know, walking the talk, which I do think is a very significant barrier, by the way, um, other than that, I, I think let's assume those things are in place. What's the next thing that you need to do? One of the things that you need to do is to be very clear on uh, a very basic model, which is how do you combine together what's needed with what's possible? I mean, at its, at its core, at its essence, innovation is bringing together a really deep understanding of what's needed from the customer with what's possible technically. And when those two things come together, there's a sweet spot that happens, and you can create products that delight your customers. And often a major issue is companies really just simply do not know the needs of their consumers or customers. Now, they know obvious needs or top-line needs, but, I mean, often the reason that products fail in the marketplace is because the concept is wrong. This morning, I had a conversation here with one of the faculty members about Segway. Now, look at Segway. The thing performs terrifically, right? Technically, it's not a problem, but it's a poor concept. It solves a problem that doesn't really exist for people. It has all kinds of conceptual problems in terms of the benefit and how it improves consumers' lives at a price that they can afford. So getting very clear often on on the consumer need and really understanding that at a deep level, at a price the consumer is willing to pay, is, is what I mean by the market concept. And often, many, many failures, and I've looked at um, hundreds of products, probably 60, 70 percent of the time, the source of failure is they didn't understand the consumer. So just think of your product, things that have failed for you. Just go down your list and say, was this a technology failure or a concept failure? And often they're concept failures. And even successes are often on the basis of concepts. So let's take iPod, which is an enormously successful product. Name a new technology that's in iPod. There isn't a new technology, right? It's a concept. It's a concept in terms of the business model. It's a great insight around consumers don't want to buy albums anymore. They want to buy individual songs. The, now, the assembly and the user interface, again, is concept. I mean, it's not a new technology. So I, I, I think uh, – so 
it's a long-winded way to say getting the insight, the customer insight at a profound level is enormously important, and building the capability and skills to do that is enormously important. Now, once you have that, then to get very clear on what are the ways that I can solve problems for consumers or customers, and to not just think about um, innovation as a product, but it also it's, you have to think about innovation as a total solution, product and both products and services. Uh, how do you deliver better experiences, uh, shopping experiences, uh, the total brand experience or the usage experience? Or how do I become really a trust mark? How do I become a develop a uh, meaningful, trusted relationship with a consumer? All of those areas require innovation. So it may not just be on a product feature, but it's across solutions, experiences, and building relationships. So, you know, again, it partly deals with mindset as well. I keep coming back to the word mindset because, you know, uh, it's it, people often just run to, I need a stage gate model <laughs> or I need a piece of technology and I'm innovating. It's a lot more than that. It's a very, uh, takes a lot of experience. And, uh, but, you know, with, with uh, commitment and discipline, it's one that, you know, people can master. A number of companies are, are, are mastering it. How can companies fail to understand what the consumer wants or needs when they spend millions of dollars in market research? And- well, that's the problem. Uh, have you lo- ever looked at the output? I mean, someone called me the other night about um, my uh, drive-through experience, I think, uh, at uh, McDonald's or whatever it was. And I told them what it was, but I proceeded to try to tell them, you're asking me the wrong question. You know, you're asking me about my drive-through experience when I don't like the food experience. I would like you to put my comment on your form, in which case they didn't really. I knew that they ignored me and sort of hung up at that point. But um, you tend to ask questions, number one, with preconceived notions. So it's you don't have a good discovery process. Consumers in focus groups tell you what you want to hear often. And you, focus groups are like ground, well, the movie Groundhog Day. You, uh, you know, I've been involved in doing, on uh, developing new products. And uh, on average, you have, let's say, eight consumers in a focus group. Each consumer gets 12 minutes of airtime. And you proceed to do focus groups from city to city. And it's like the movie Groundhog Day over and over again. And so uh, you, you tend to get, from the consumers are very slick in telling you either grandstanding with other consumers or telling you sort of what you want to hear. So they're very confusing. Now, let's go to another consumer research technique, which is doing survey documents. Now, we'll have often people say, tell me, you know, long lists of questions and attitudes and usage and everything. But by the time it's over then, you might do, let's say, 400 consumers. And what do you get? Tabulations of statistical data, okay? You, ne- you cannot read one consumer's holistic experience, mind, body, soul, and task, okay, of a product. So what if I said to you, I want to develop the ideal beer product? Well, what I want to do with you is not focus groups. What I want to do is I want to understand your mind, your logic experience, with, let's say, beer products. And you're going to probably talk about 
high carbs and taste. That's the logic. Uh, mind, body, the sensorial experience. You're probably going to say you want it cold. Uh, and all kinds of things about the sensory experience. S- uh, soul, the emotional experience. Look how Budweiser owns and really owns the relationship with men. Budweiser isn't about beer. It's about guy-to-guy relationships. Task, why am I drinking this? Okay, So what you really want to understand is one consumer in terms of mind, body, soul, and task and, and map and a holistic consumer experience and spend 12 hours with one consumer spent over a one-month period versus you know, running 50 focus groups where you have eight minutes with an individual consumer and do the Groundhog Day event over and over and over again. So what we have done is we've created, for example, a studio process, and we have learned that we can get as much information from five consumers mapped in depth, mind, body, soul, and task, as you can from 50 focus groups. Five consumers, 12 hours each over a month, versus 50 focus groups over and over again, on average, eight minutes per consumer in a focus group. What do you do with these consumers for 12 hours? Well, what you do is you, you, cre- you, you start with a hypothesis of how you're going to create a huge business. This hypothesis feeds a very deliberate protocol that's designed to elicit logic and emotion. Okay. The emotion is gathered up, and often the most important aspect of what you need to get from consumers is the unconscious. Now, the issue is if I'm talking to you, if I do an interview with the two of you right now about this bottle of water sitting here on the table, you're going to give me some rational, right brain, conscious comments. However, if I gave you 12 photographs, none of them about water, out of a magazine, and I said, tell me your thoughts and feelings about how water uh, can positively improve your life. Let's just make that up. And I ask you to look at a photograph. I will probe into your unconscious because I'm te- as I'm speaking right now and as people are listening to this, what's going off in your mind are pictures, okay? You're not processing a word and do... There are images. That's how the brain works. However, our consumer research methods are verbocentric. They're words, which gets you into the conscious level. If I can interact with you on your thoughts and feelings about water through imagery, you cannot. You won't believe the amount of stuff quote that would flow. <laughs> okay, it's it's unbelievable. Okay, and we understand. We unravel. We elicit the dream with consumers through these deep probing methods that get at the unconscious. So we have entire protocols that are designed to get at the logic, the emotion, the sensory experience, and the task. And it takes 12 hours to do that over multiple weeks with very detailed maps put together, about 400 concepts on a map. And the first consumer will give us 400 concepts, the second consumer will give us 400, but there will only be like 200 new. The third will give us 400. There will be about 100 new. By the time I get to the fifth consumer, I've elicited the entire experience domain of a targeted group of consumers. So let's say I'm eliciting 
uh, I'm trying to get to moms who have had their first baby, and I'm trying to elicit the ideal diapering experience. I only have to get to five moms because I build these maps, and I pretty much elicit the domain space, but that doesn't tell me what, that doesn't necessarily say what one mom tells me is the most important. I've only elicited the experience space. I then have to develop concepts and product prototypes and go to the entire world to understand, is this a statistically significant idea from a big population? But I can elicit a domain space. So imagine five maps of moms, first baby moms, on the wall with each of them 400 concepts. Imagine the amount of insight there where I deeply probe them like a psychologist in some cases. And you can see see how this is very different than you know, the call that I got at home where the guy asked me and I said, well, you're asking me the wrong question, or looking at a bunch of statistical data. It's a very different kinds of approach to the world. And so it's really, really powerful. We were talking some time ago uh, in this very room to uh, uh, two uh, senior consultants from the Boston Consulting Group. Uh-huh. They'd written a book called Payback, Payback. Uh, about innovation. Uh-huh. And their argument was that uh, it, the, the problem that companies face is not so much that they lack for ideas. Yeah. In fact, there are too many ideas. Their real challenge is taking those ideas and getting and implementing them in a way that you can make innovation pay for itself. Uh, do, you, do you think that's right? And uh, how, how, do you, uh, how do you manage that in, in, yeah. in your process? Well, number one, I disagree with BCG. Having run... Um, Why? Well, number one, you never have enough great ideas, okay? And if you have a better idea, you drop an idea off the bottom of the list. I, dis- I totally disagree that companies... Look, companies have idea files. They have submitted idea systems. I would say that companies have file drawers of many meaningless ideas, but they don't, certainly don't have file drawers of ideas that have the legs to drive business growth. I, I totally disagree with this, by the way. And I'm interacting with CEOs all over the place right now, and I know from Procter & Gamble. So, but let's set that aside for a minute because <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I feel so strongly about that. Okay. Uh, uh, no, but the question then is: Let's assume that you have a good idea. How do you how do you get a good return on it? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, the major thing that I think it's important to do is what you've got to do to be successful is that you have got to you've got to uh, early on do financial modeling and good pro forma work and identify killer issues along with the ideation process. So in other words, for example, this bottle of water, let's assume that I've created a new concept of engineered water. Uh, I would want to basically, let's say I have a prototype here, I want to really understand immediately what does the business plan look like and to financially model that. What's going to be the trial rate? What's going to be the repeat rate? And what are going to be the killer issues? Okay. Um, and to really have the concept process and the innovation process be very informed by the financials on an innovation. Most companies, 
go and invent things, and then at the end figure out how am I going to price it. They find out it's priced too high. The consumers aren't going to pay for it. And so what you've got to do is you've really got to move way up front the whole financial modeling and identification of killer issues so that you can be successful, okay? That, that, that's, that's one very important thing. The other important thing is you've got to get to uh, a buying experience with your customers very early, okay? You've got to find a way to make a little and sell a little. You can't rely on uh, finance. You can't rely on uh, market forecasts, which are notoriously wrong. They're almost always wrong. You have to be informed by trying to find a way to sell this product, getting out into some sort of market situation and trying to sell it. You can you try to sell it. Um, you might go on QVC and try to sell it, but try to get realistic data. You know, the other day I had uh, a company come to me and said, well, that's great for consumer products. You can make a little and sell a little, but, and, uh, you know, but we make uh, enterprise software that sits on a computer. I said, well, let's think about this. Now, how would we change your decision on your process? Let's assume that you came to me, I'm a, I'm a big corporation, and you said, hey, I've got this great concept. Are you going to buy it? Well, I could say, I'll always say yes. You know, probably most companies will say yes. But if you came to me and said, hey, I've got this, and this is really going to improve your business, we would like $50,000 to develop the concept further. We're going to give you a preferential position. You're going to get five times that back in terms of pricing. It's going to save you all this. If I say, yeah, that's going to be a big signal. But if I say no, right, that's going to tell you that I really didn't believe in it. So you've got to find a way to invent into your process a real value exchange that forces the customer to put up something, to have some skin in the game when they give you advice on whether or not something's going to be successful. Most companies don't do it. And so one of the most important things that any company can do is figure out early in the process of how to run the test. You know, consumers will say, oh, I'm going to buy this. You get them in a focus group. And so what I've learned to do is say, uh, go and knock on their door, you know, uh, two months later and go, oh, you said you would buy this. Could you just give us our credit, your credit card because we're ready to ship this to you? And they go, well, I really don't want it. Okay, well, that tells you, okay, more often they say, I really don't want it. So you have got to figure out these kinds of things, okay, and not be uh, not work in rote ways because, frankly, I think so much of the advice out there that I see is very rote. You know, everybody's implementing the same systems, and they're not thinking through the human behavior issues and the flaws and problems and not inventing around these. So yeah, I think you have to – Yeah, you ha- this is a very much a thinking person's game in trying to figure out how to be successful. In an earlier conversation, you mentioned the Discovery Studio operation. Uh-huh. What is that? Well, Discovery Studio is is an idea uh, that you know we've implemented it at Four uh, Inno, uh, which is how do how do we create a really big business in you know in one fifth the time that it normally takes you to create a business? Uh, how can we create or conceptualize say? a half a billion or a billion dollar business in 16 to 20 weeks. And uh, what we 
uh, do is really work against a three major three-step process, which is number one, let's make sure on the front end we're asking right questions. And second, once we're asking right questions, how do we dig deep into the consumer, as I've just described with you? And then third, once we've dug deep into the consumer, how do we put together the concepts and technologies that are going to solve the problem? But it's importantly driven from the right questions, and it's very hard for people to ask right questions. And the reason it's it's hard is um, it's very hard for you to ask a question outside your frame of experience, okay? So if I ask you, you know, tell me what you would do to create a new beer business or a new brand, and what are the right questions to ask, you would have a hard time doing that. You'd have a very difficult time. But it, So you have to find a way to do that. So what do we do? We, we say, okay, what, what well, we look for analogies, for example. What business has a, a situation that's similar to the beer business that's flat sales? Well, coffee used to be that way. Think about coffee. It was, you know, you knew the coffee drinkers by how much gray hair they had, right? That wasn't too long ago. It's not that way now. But why did coffee go from declining flat or declining sales to being a growth business? Well, there's all kinds of answers, frankly, and it's more than Starbucks. I mean, for example, uh, I just came from another building here, and we had a terrific espresso And the reason why we had a terrific espresso was they had terrific espresso machines. All of a sudden, you have terrific machines that have been deployed all over the place. So devices became important. Well, well, how would we do that? Could we use a device strategy in beer in some way? Well, maybe we could find a way to do draft beer. It's that. So how do I begin to ask right questions? And one of the most important parts of, of creating big growth is, is uh, asking new questions, asking right questions, different questions, because most people operate in very rote ways about how to do things. So it's a – think of it as a, a, an environment in studio where it's very inquiry-driven and you're building in-depth knowledge and you have all the creative tools to quickly formulate these things. And, you know, instead of taking three years, you do it in, you know, six months and in, you know, uh, significantly less time. And, uh, you know, having the freedom. So creating sort of the studio kind of environment where that kind of inquiry and learning can go on, I think is very important. Can the consumer be a brand builder? I think the consumers are, can be a brand builder. I think... uh, How so? Well, I think, well, first of all, uh, social communities are really important. The Internet's important. And, uh, I mean, you see consumers being involved in brand building through things like YouTube and creating, uh, you know, advertising and things like that for companies. The key question is, in what way can companies create benefits for consumers uh, to uh, build brands to make a contribution to brand building at many more touch points. And uh, right now, of course, as I said, I think all of the all the storytelling and all the news out there are things like the YouTubes of the world. But, you know, I think uh, there are, you know, an emergent whole new world where uh, consumers 
uh, are are much more motivated to be involved in in building brands at uh, you know at, at different kinds of touch points. This is, I think, an area under rapid development and evolution right now. It's not, uh, and it's an area that uh, we're documenting in terms of stories and and, and the like. But I, I do think it's sort of like the next next uh, wave of open innovation is around consumers as brand builders. What are some of the challenges of launching new products in global markets? In global markets, well, I think probably the biggest challenge for most companies is they sort of take an idea from a Western geography, let's say the U.S. or Europe, and just basically try to take the cost out to get the price down in order to sell it in a you know in India or China or Indonesia or wherever it might be. And that mentality has been proven to just be uh, lead to a lot of failure. What you've got to do, I think, is start from you know a clean sheet of paper and say, what are the needs of these consumers? You've got to respect the needs of these consumers as unique, and they're very different. And you've got to design a product at a price point that meets their needs under their local conditions. The idea that you just, you know, put it in instead of bottles, you put it in plastic bags and, you know, you just, you know, reduce the chemistry costs or whatever it might be and you just, that doesn't doesn't succeed. So I think the major challenge uh, is, is that. I mean, I think that's the fundamentally the biggest challenge that companies face is they just have got to then develop the local consumer research and technology and sourcing strategies in each region in order to create terrific products at a price that consumers find delightful. What companies have been successful in doing this? Well, I don't know. You know, uh, that's a hard one for me to answer because I I don't pay that much attention to products. But I think, uh, and I don't have many of the stories on the tip of my tongue, but yeah, I think P&G is uh, driving the growth of its international business quite well and uh, is creating good value for consumers. But I, I don't have enough enough of those details to give you a good answer, I'm afraid. Uh, you, you, you may have answered this question uh-huh. in, in different ways in our conversation so far, but how would you sum up your innovation philosophy? Well, I would say the innovation philosophy, you know, is number one, it's all about superior insights and intellect. It's not just about money and scale. I think uh, it's knowledge-driven and uh, connections-driven. Uh, to me, creativity is about connecting things. That's what creativity is. And I think people there uh, sometimes confuse uh, creativity and innovation. I think it's really about having din- deep insights about things and connecting them, the consumer or the technology. Uh, I would say that uh, current mental models are, are a big barrier, you know, how a business is run. So you've got to learn to ask new questions. Uh, setting big goals is big because it forces you outside the box to look for whole new, you know, a discontinuous goal means that an incremental answer is not going to be good. So if, if, if I, I give you a simple example, let's let's say you are a a um, a high jumper, okay? And you can get over a bar that's seven feet high. And if I said, I want you to get over a bar that's seven feet two, what would you do? You would say, 
I'll improve my kick, my leg strength, or whatever, right? If I said, however, I want you to get over a bar that's 10 feet high, and I don't care how you get over it, what would you do? You'd like, get a ladder, jump over a trampoline, you pole vault, right? But notice that as soon as I gave you a discontinuous goal, your mind went to a totally different data set. And that's why discontinuous goals are important, because if you give you an incremental goal, you'll go to the data set and the answer you already have in-house. If I give you a discontinuous goal, it's going to force you to immediately say, I can't solve this inside with what I know. I've got to go outside. So discontinuous goals are very important, the ability to ask right questions, this ability to create deep knowledge and insights of consumers. And I think finally, you know, this idea that we can connect and create value rather than invent everything ourselves. Uh, most people have the idea that if the consumer needs something, we're going to run to our labs or to the bench and invent it ourselves. So the first question should be, A, in fact, do we already have it solved someplace in our organization? Secondly, if not, does the world solve it? Most often, the world has solved it. And then finally, if it's not inside and the world hasn't solved it, go think about inventing it yourself. But don't immediately have a knee-jerk reaction of run to the bench and think that you're going to invent these things yourself because it's just a waste of time and money, and it doesn't add value for the consumer in the end. So it's punishing, you know, to do that. It's, and so, again, it, it all ties back to what I said by mindset. These mindsets are a very, very big part of this. Thank you so much for you're joining welcome. us. Yeah. yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.